0: Come on. Well, I'm Lifeblood. This is George G. And the time is right. Welcome to today's guests, Strong and powerful Rebecca Modrak and Jamie Vanderbrook. Ladies, are you ready to do this?
1: Yeah. Excited to be here.
0: Excellent. Excited to have you on. Rebecca and Jamie are the editors of Radical Humility, essays on ordinary acts with contributors from renowned scholars, psychologists, artists, Radic- Radical Humility offers guidance and comes at a time when humility is being stressed from the top. Tell us a little bit about your personal lives, some more about your work, and what motivated you to, to do the project.
1: So this is Rebecca and um, I'm an artist and I teach, I'm a professor at the Stamp School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. Um, and I, one summer I um, left Ann Arbor and I went to spend the, a few months in Nebraska to interview um, farmers about their jobs. And I was really happy to leave the university that summer. Um, I just had been around a lot of um, occasions where people like to talk about what they did in ways that sort of put themselves ahead of other people. And um, I escaped to Nebraska, where as I interviewed farmers, uh, farmers kept telling me, um, you should interview this one particular farmer. And I would say, you know, like, why is that? And I would think they were gonna tell me, um, you know, that he knew about pest control or, crop rotation and they said he's really humble and it wasn't a word that i heard very often and i was really interested in um humility and how it's a part of somebody's life
2: this is jamie Um, so after rebecca got back from that trip she reached out to a couple of different colleagues and i was one of them and coincidentally i had had a baby that year Um, And having my first child had really kind of opened my eyes to the ways that we think about raising humans as a society and how much influence is placed on each person being this like perfect, unique, special thing that deserves absolutely everything um, it ever could want or desire, like kind of right from the start, which was uh, overwhelming me and freaking me out a little bit because I was sort of like projecting into the future I'm thinking, well, if they're all raised like this, how will they have a community together? Or what, how will they ever learn to take themselves aside if they ever need to, so that someone else can step forward. Um, so as I was sort of grappling with all of that and not really at the top of my mind, just kind of like, um, it was kind of bubbling back there. Rebecca approached me about, um, joining a project related to humility and, um, And I realized that I had already been thinking about it, not so much professionally in the way that Rebecca had been, but more personally. Um, And so then we began uh, trying to assemble a group of people to think about it together. And it was really important to us at the start that that group of people be a diverse group of people and that they come from lots of different backgrounds. Our intention was not to assemble a bunch of people just from universities. Um, So that was really important at the start.
0: Awesome. Well, that certainly does make sense. Um, so you need to talk to this person. Why? Not because they're the best farmer or they have the best methods because they're humble. And after talking to that person, did, 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 did you walk away with, with what, was, what was sort of the vibe or, or, or your feeling?
1: Well, you know, interestingly, I never got to like the holy grail of that particular that one person that a few people mentioned to me, but I saw this trade in so many aspects of my life in Nebraska and um, how people interacted with each other. For example, you know, a farmer who was um, who had a lavender farm who, you know, where the crop was destroyed by hail one winter. And um, she had to replant the whole crop and then it was, you know, destroyed by something else. And, um, you know, every farmer had a story like that of facing, you know, failure on a daily basis and, and just like moving on, you know, accepting it and um, finding the best way to adapt. But I also saw it, you know, when I went to um, town barbecues or pancake breakfasts, the people that I sat with, you know, never talked about um, who they were. They would talk about their children. they talk about, you know, cycling or the weather or, or you know, pets and um, their lives. Or they would ask us questions about where we were from. And then when they would leave the room, the person next to us would say, you know, by the way, that was the town mayor. Or mm. by the way, that was our state senator one time that happened. And it, um, so, you know, it was really a part of life there.
0: And then we flip that and the potentially the opposite side of the coin is, and is it appropriate to say that, well, like the self-esteem movement that, 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 that we got into, and I don't know when that started, but telling everybody that we are, you know, special, we are uniquely special and, and that's, that's how we're raised, is, is that almost the opposite or am I looking at the wrong way?
2: Well, I think one thing we learned when we investigated humility is I always thought like humility's opposite is arrogance, but like, uh, in talking to all these different people with many different perspectives and backgrounds and trainings about humility, it's, um, it's not one thing. And so there isn't one opposite to it. So absolutely. That is a, like, especially the story that I told, I think that like, that's a big counter part to it that, um, you know this like self esteem for sure versus um sort of like smallness or being a part of a um uh a big community um but there's actually research that shows that even in more collectivist societies um humility is not always like a um you know number one value because um people still feel like pride at being like the most sacrificial to the community or things <laughs> like that um, so but I think that one of the most interesting things was just, like, the variety and the diversity of definitions of humility, of places where it shows up in people's lives, um, and, the, like, the, the sheer, like, um, difference in the stories that we heard from people, like, from doctor's offices, to lawyers, to people in restaurants, it shows up in lots of places.
1: One of the psychologists that we spoke with, uh, this question came up of, you know, well, isn't it okay to feel good about something that I've done and to, you know, be proud of it or excited about it? And she made a difference, a distinction between, um, you know, being proud of, of an action or, for example, like you might be proud of the podcast and proud of the conversations and the information you're sharing. And that's really different than being proud of like George, you know, like that it's all about you, George, and it's all like said in the like. You know, singular I. Um, so f- focusing more on what comes from from you know an action that's really positive, rather than like you know the big glowing me that's in the center of it.
0: That makes sense. So, in a perfect world, should there be such a such a thing, people would ex- would understand, embrace, and practice more humility.
1: Definitely, and you know, this is again back to this this one psychologist, Jen Wright, who um, wrote one of the essays for the book, and for me was really, um, you know, one of the key um, people that we spoke with. She talks a lot about humility being um, a process and a state of being that you come into and out of. Um, so, you know, if if like our natural inclination is to see ourselves as the center of this gravitational force Um, that, you know, we have to kind of continually reframe our vision and which is something that I'll do often. Um, But, and so every time we do that, you know, we, we kind of remind ourselves that the world is much larger than us and there are many more people involved. Um, We're, 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 you know, processing through this state of being. Um, but it's, you know, we we lapse in and out of it. And um, it's not, it's not as though you ever achieve this perfect state of humility and um, just exist within that.
0: I like that. It's a process in a state of being. And I remember my mom would tell me when I was a little kid, and probably today, it's like the world does not revolve around you, George. And I think that that's obviously true and something that we need to keep in mind, how do we balance self-worth with humility? I guess that's the practice part.
2: Well, I think that comes back again to this question of self-esteem. Um, I've been, she's not included in the book, but I've been reading the work of the psychologist, Kristen Neff, a lot lately. She works on self-compassion um, and she pushes people to um, to be compassionate with themselves rather than to base their worth on esteem, like because you're always sort of comparing yourself. I think mm-hmm. when you're basing your worth on self-esteem. So I think humility is a key component there because if you sort of start with the sense that you are an imperfect person and, but we all are, and none of us is any better or any worse than others. I think humility really plays into adopting that state of mind authentically. Um, And then I think it just sort of relieves this pressure valve that I think that we've like inflated into people. I mean, Rebecca and I are in this um, academic environment that's sort of coming off a wave of entrepreneurship being like really um, dominant sort of like, theory is the wrong word, but like that's like that was like the ethos where we were working for a long time. Um, And that really subsists on this sense that like everyone um, should make it for themselves. It's all based on like your brand and what you can bring to the table and how you can like survive on your own. Um, And I think that instills in especially young people, almost this like panic that they need to be better than all of the other people around them. So I think if people can kind of start with this sense that like no no matter what you manage to achieve, no person is actually better or worse than another person. Uh, That, I think, there's almost like a calm peace that can come for people who are practicing um, this sort of way of thinking, um, this sort of like humble mindset. Um, If you're sort of thinking about yourself as part of a very, like um, sort of like a a boundaryless group of people I think that's um, an easier way to live almost.
1: And I love that. And one of the things that we did when we put together this book was was really looking for models of people who acted out humility in their daily lives. And some of the people who wrote essays for the book, um, their heroes are people who like their greatest, their biggest sort of thing that they're known for is a failure. And I love that, I, I you know think about all the time with my kids, like, um, teaching them that the people that we should value are the people who failed and we should value them for failing, like for as an example of that. And, and this is a redefining failure in a sense also. Um, one of the authors in the book, uh, Troy Jollin Moore, um, who's a philosopher and a poet, um, writes about a philosopher named Philippa Foote, who in the 70s wrote a paper that was really influential um and then in the 1990s she started referring people to another paper that criticized her her original paper and um, she then recanted her original paper and said you know i was wrong a lot of the things that i wrote i was wrong well troy Jollymore shows both the original essay and her recantation to his students and says this is this is a, a really you know perfect model of Somebody who's willing to give up their, you know, and willing willing to admit the things that they thought, you know, were problematic, so that they can move forward and gain new knowledge. Um, And he says that often his students are really kind of upset by this, and they say, "She should have stood her ground. She should have said, you know, I, um, you know, I said this and I meant it and I believe in it." Um, But it's, you know, he tries to teach them that it's far more valuable um, for for somebody to you know, to give up parts of themselves as they grow and they evolve.
0: Yeah, I think that that's incredible. There are fewer things in the world that that make me more frustrated when people don't own mistakes and they just continue to, if the term is double down or whatever it might be, it's like, just say that you're wrong and that we as human beings have the capacity to learn and grow and change. And that's, I think what you're talking about or part of it.
1: That's right. Yeah. My other favorite, I mean, I, I have like 10 favorite essays in the book, but another favorite one is by an attorney who um, was the chief attorney for um, a hospital system. And um, at a certain point, he said, you know, we're going to start acknowledging our mistakes from this point on. If you make a mistake, um, you come forward, you admit you were wrong, and let's try to make it better because he realized how much trauma was caused um, for doctors who felt that they, you know, if they had prescribed just like the wrong dose of medicine, that they had to kind of, you know, pretend that they hadn't, that they then, you know, like their whole future was jeopardized as a doctor by doing that. The patient was, you know, um, you know, traumatized have to fight the hospital system to prove this. The hospital never, you know, if, for example, say the say the labeling was hard to read they never made the change to the labeling so the problem would occur again and his essay is about you know what it was like for him to go through this process with um within this medical system i i mean i think i read that essay like every other month just to kind of like remind myself that there was this person you know in this position of power who instead of like um seeing power as something where you know you you control um knowledge or information, instead, using it as a way to, um, you know, encourage people to fess up and claim mistakes.
2: That's a really powerful essay. If you like just cherry pick one essay out of the book, I think that's one of the ones I would think of to, to suggest. I was just um, for the first time with colleagues who are other art librarians in Chicago, and more than one of them came up to me to say that they read that essay and cried on the subway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, like, definitely, um, I think humility can be just this, like, very powerful. Um, it unlocks, I think, what you brings us together as people, instead of what sort of is keeping us apart. And I think that's almost like medicine that we need uh, in our society right now.
0: I think that that's a, a great way to put it. And it strikes me that if we are if we are going, to, if it's going to be possible to do what what you're talking about, what we're talking about, that we need to extend grace when somebody does make a mistake and not cancel them or fire them or shame them or whatever.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think, like, um, I think that I I think that a lot of when we think about humility, we think about what we can do as ourselves. And that's fair enough. Like that's what we can control. Um, But it is also like extending grace to other people um, and to like kind of giving people space to mess up. Um, And, you know, recognizing that, like if you are around children at any point, it is really hard to say that you're wrong. It's hard for them to learn to say they're wrong. And it's hard to say you're wrong to them, even to like a child. So like imagining saying, you're wrong. If you are in a position of power, like I, that's not an easy thing to do. So I think also recognizing, um, I don't know what we need to do to encourage it to happen more. I mean, Rebecca and I have talked a lot about what needs to happen at, you know, the institution that we, we work in. And I'm sure that you observe people who need to apologize also, or say that they've done things that are wrong, but it's hard.
0: I found that it's, I, I wish that I could point to people right now that are famous or that have come out and said, Hey, this this I made a mistake. And because I know that when I do that over the course of my life, that's when real connections are made, especially when I have been in a position to leadership and I admit to the people that I'm working with or leading that I screwed up and and I own that. And because we are all fallible and we all, all, all do make mistakes that, that just tightens the bond and, and really increases trust. And I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and I will tell them I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It, 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 it's not easy, but I'll absolutely tell them when, when, when I've made mistakes because I do it all the time. And, and I apologize. I find that it's a muscle that that just needs to be exercised. And that as you do it, you become more comfortable with it and you get better at it.
2: That's such a good point. And I think it's also possible to then never use the muscle. <laughs> and so like you get to a point where like it's just like um painful in this like excruciating way to admit it. And I think that too many people in powerful positions have not practiced it. And so like their first time having to practice it would be a really, really high stakes situation. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: yeah and i think the psychologists and philosophers that we spoke with said that the more you apologize to your children like apologizing to them kind of on a daily basis which i i tend to do i also like because it's so easy i mean little things like right like i you know i forgot to put the like carrots in your lunch like i'm sorry you know it's so easy to say that and um I I remember these studies that, you know, they shared with us where if you do apologize and your children see like how easily I'm sorry comes from your lips, then they grow up to be people who, you know, don't have sort of like weird fetishes about being perfect and are willing to say they're sorry to other people and become really good leaders and really good, um, you know, people to work with and, you know, better communicate with their own family. So. Um, it, it's hard. I, I say I'm sorry to my, to my children every day. And um, <laughs> right now, my son, if he needs to say he's sorry, it's so hard for him still, even, even with me doing that. Um, it's just like painful for him to say it. And I'm trying to help him where, you know, it just like comes out easily, but he needs like a good three hours for something to kind of settle in. With him and process it before it's ready to come out the other side as a sorry. So we'll
0: see. Yeah, just because I say sorry to my kids doesn't mean that they're good at seeing it back. So I totally yeah. get it. <laughs> they are tiny humans, and 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 it is a lot. I just had the opportunity to talk with a talk with a, a therapist, and she was telling me how how young people are suffering so immensely with mental health challenges, and one of the things is. Uh, struggling with with perfection. And so I think that the more that your work uh, and the more conversations and the more parents can talk to their kids about how it's, we're imperfect and we make mistakes and yeah. it's just part of the human experience that that's probably how, in fact, I, I know that that's how we're going to start making these changes just one at a time.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, for me, like these essays, I mean, I wish this book was in high school curriculum because um, you know, there's another essay in the book by Mickey Duche, who I don't know if you watch this series on Netflix called Losers. Um, it's a series where uh, maybe there were like five to eight episodes, and each one was about a different athlete who had, you know, totally failed. Like, a, a, I think it was like a golfer who, you know, like wasn't expected to do well, did really well, reached the like top game, and then just bombed that game. And, you know, um, had to live on not only with that failure, but with being known for like a huge failure. Mm -hmm. And Mickey describes like in each of these cases, like what, what that failure enabled in their life that then we don't go on. We don't, we weren't, we didn't have access to see, but was really kind of pivotal in like a life-changing moment for them where they learned, you know, other things that they loved and other ways they had of connecting with the world or contributing to the world. Um, so I, I think for me, like, you know, lovely thing about this book is that it does provide, especially, you know, growing curious people about the world, a way of being in the world, um, that's, you know, not just about perfection.
0: Well said. Jamie, any additional thoughts?
2: Um, yeah, I mean. I guess I just, I come back to like this sense of um, the power of being ordinary, I think. To me, that's what my biggest takeaway from working on this project. I think like that working on this project really transformed the way that I communicate and um, interact, especially with coworkers and friends. Uh, And an essential aspect of it is just embracing ordinariness instead of perfection or instead of special or uniqueness. Um, so I think that's something that's the very um important lesson, I guess, from the book to, for people to take home.
0: Love it, Rebecca.
1: Um, is this where I give a suggestion of like
0: for sure, yeah, I yeah
1: <laughs> my I jumping
0: I, uh, yeah I, I uh we we ran a little bit, running a little bit long, but yeah. Give us that difference-making tip for okay. sure.
1: <laughs> okay. um, one thing that I do sometimes if I'm, you know, for example, say there's like a grant I didn't get or some other kind of disappointment is I do try to like imagine myself. And I, like at first I imagine myself in this kind of small room with like myself at the center. And then I just kind of like make the room around me get bigger and bigger and bigger until like I'm in this huge like kind of universe or a huge world and I've become you know a little bit smaller in that world and I think for me it kind of releases me of some of the claustrophobia of feeling like a singular event a little too closely.
0: love it. Jamie, you have a difference making tip
2: Yeah I think it's just what Rebecca just said like be small, be ordinary it's
0: okay. Well, I, think life. Life. I mean it. <laughs> I think that those are great. That definitely gets a Come on. Rebecca and Jamie, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people learn more about you and how can they get a copy of Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts?
1: Uh, the book's published by Belt Publishing and you can get it at the Belt website.
0: Okay. And if they wanted to learn more about the two of you, where can they find you?
1: I'm uh, Rebecca Modrak.com.
2: And um, I'm Jamie Vanderbrook. And um, you can find me, um, I guess, mostly where I work. So I'm a librarian at the University of Michigan.
0: Excellent. Well, if you enjoyed this much as I did, show Rebecca and Jamie your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Pick up a copy of Essays on Ordinary Acts, um, Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts, and it was Belt Publishing. At Belt Publishing, I'll list all that and where you can track, uh, find more in the notes of the show. Thanks again, Rebecca and Jamie. Thank you.